Hi, I'm Jordan Mentor, and you're listening to the Brooklyn to Beijing podcast. Every episode elevates a new conversation around China and its ever-changing relationship with the Black diaspora. Welcome. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Brooklyn to Beijing podcast, where today we're going to discuss sort of a big loaded question, right? And that is, why is Beijing for Black Lives Matter? And what was that support all about last year? And what do things look like right now? I'm your host, Jordan. And today with me is a pretty cool guy whose article actually inspired this episode. His name is Changzhe. Today, we'll be talking about China's sort of, you know, vocal support for Black Lives Matter. But with historical context, we'll talk about its implications for U.S. foreign policy. And we'll actually talk about how, you know, China is sort of going public about, you know, just siding with this, you know, what it means for the movement itself. So this is our special guest, Chang Che, and let's get started today. So Chang, you're a writer, right? You focus on Chinese politics and society generally. So I always think it's best to let my guests kind of do their pitch, their intro. I think it's only right. So I'll like hand the mic over to you to sort of give us some background on who you are and kind of tell us, you know, just how you came to be where you are today and, and kind of like what, I guess, what brought you to writing this article? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be on here. Um, Likewise, the so yeah, the reason why I well, I, I became a writer. Um, I think partly because I I was kind of dis, dissatisfied with my with my graduate work, uh, and <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, write in a different form. Um, you know, I was writing you know academic articles, and I felt. Mm-hmm. A little bit restrained, um, and I, I thought oh. that my ideas um, would be better rendered in in the more sort of public written form. Um, and so I left <laughs> academia. Uh-huh. Um, oh, so you actually? So were you like in grad school, or were you? Did you get a PhD or get a master's degree, and then you decided, to, or did you leave it while doing your degree? So I wasn't one of those who were like who like went into a PhD program and and left. Um, I actually mm-hmm. well, so so I I I, I did a something called an MPhil uh, at Oxford. Okay, right, and, right. Um, it's kind of supposed to lead, it's a two-year master's. It's like longer mm-hmm. than what it should be. So, <laughs> because it's supposed to kind of prepare you for doctoral, doctoral work. Oh, so, gotcha. um, most, most of the people who finish the MPhil continue on to the DPhil. Uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah, and then, I, you know, in that kind of period, um, COVID hit and I think, you know, the world kind of. Changed. Oh, so this is all pretty recent. When it all yeah, yeah, it's super recent, oh. super recent. Um, so all of this is is new. Um, and but you know, in the in the later end of my MPhil, um, I had decided that I wanted to write. You, you know, there was so much going on with respect to China, right? So, like the mm-hmm. the, the context of when I wrote the article was the summer of 2020. I mean, yeah. <laughs> lots of stuff wild everywhere in the world just a wild everywhere summer, yeah. in the world just lit up <laughs> and i was writing on roman republicanism and i was like am i is this really you know am, yeah. <laughs> is this where i'm gonna dig my grave is, is republican <laughs> rome um so uh i left and um you know never looked back well i mean i looked back a little so bit, the, but, you know. <laughs> yeah so in leaving was it like you you because you said you were in oxford did you leave england or and to, to you know to come to the u.s or did you just leave the field and just stay where you are 
um, w- I, it was both a physical and spiritual separation. So <laughs> God, I left uh, the. I mean, I finished. I completed the program. I just um, and in oh, fact, okay. I did end up getting into the defil. I just didn't take it, and I, I went to. Um, I started applying for. I, I mean, I, I worked as a freelancer for a little bit, and so the, mm-hmm. when I was writing uh, the piece for Washington Post, I was still a freelancer. Yeah. And back to the sort of job thing. Now I work kind of a little bit more officially as a, as a journalist um, for yeah, yeah. Uh, a China focused uh, publication called Stop China. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and right. We also have a kind of. It was doing incredible work, by the way. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's some, there's some good work um, uh, from out of the podcast side as well. So Kaiser mm-hmm. Kuo, who's the editor, um, does really, really amazing yeah. work as, on Seneca and Jeremy Goldcorn, who's also um, mm-hmm. those two kind of, are the leaders of the ship. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, I guess a little tangent. Um, were you part of the whole clubhouse wave earlier this year? Like everybody was in clubhouse for a second? You know, I uh, was uh, tangential to it. So <laughs> I didn't actually go into any of the things, but I, yeah. I knew that um, Jeremy and Kaiser were. Right, right. Yeah. I, yeah, I've been listening to Seneca Podcast a while and then Kaiser's like hosting a room. I'm like, Kaiser? And then so it was... I got into the room like right before, um, you know, like the actual, cause I think he, he did a podcast on clubhouse, I think was what it was. So as the yeah. room was sort of building out, he, um, he just wanted to chat, you know, bring people on stage and just chat with different people in the audience. And I was like, Oh shit, I actually got to talk to Kaiser. Like that was pretty cool. That was a cool little moment there. So just like really good work on their part. That's um, awesome. Yeah. I, I, why, yeah. Why has it stopped? I don't I think I've, so, I've done it before. Uh, honestly, it could be an entirely, you know what? That might be a good podcast idea. Like what happened to podcast episode idea? Like what happened to Clubhouse? I feel like some people, some people are, there are a lot of people that genuinely hated just the idea and concept of podcast of Clubhouse. They just thought uh, people who just like to hear themselves talk that it just, it, it died. It was supposed to die. But yeah. I just felt like it was on the part of Clubhouse themselves. Like they, they weren't, innovative enough and they weren't aggressive and competitive enough in that field like you're just supposed to be on it you know like just hmm. innovate bring out new features keep it going and and i just felt like it just sort of fell flat so <laughs> i i guess they also just climaxed like real hard like you think were, so yeah yeah and i, I mean I, I think you just couldn't follow it up because everyone was on it for a little bit and i, <laughs> yeah. I told and then there was a guys. moment where and I think what was pretty exciting about like the China space on Clubhouse, there was a moment where it wasn't censored in China. So there were so many mainland people on Clubhouse able to right. have direct um, conversations with um, with Americans, with people in the West, people from you know other countries that weren't under censorship. And there were I was in some incredible rooms where you were just getting on the ground um, perspectives and insights. Um, you know, that a lot of times gets filtered through the media, filtered through certain people, gatekeepers, and, you know, in my opinion. And then all of a sudden with it just exploding, um, you know, people started to say like, yeah, you know, the, the, the um, you know, various censors are like, um, you know, um, they're being put on notice basically. And, right. and a lot of people just started falling right. off. And, I remember yeah. that day. That day was. Yeah, that yeah was it was like a thing. It was like, yeah, like RIP, da, da, da. Like, yeah. Totally, totally. That was a big but, day. Yeah, but I think, you know, now that we're kind of like walking through your journey, it's sort of like how in the madness of last year, you know, just, you know, how did this article come to be? You know, I mean, 
Yeah, no. So all of that was to try to get there. Um, sorry, we took a little. Yeah, no, no. This it's all part. It's all part of the journey. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. During my masters, I mean, I've, I, I guess even during my undergrad, I've, I had always been working on two parallel tracks. Um, one is sort of China. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I minored. I uh, sorry, I majored in um, Chinese modern literature. It's, the the major is called comparative literature, but I I studied Chinese, mm-hmm. and um. I had also been working uh, just in the sort of and social issues, so I, I minored in um, gender studies. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, you know, gender studies was very much a um, it was kind of inundated by intersectional uh, methods, and so right. you know, right, you were right. you were studying race and you were also studying gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you know, I had always been trying to bring the two worlds together. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tried that during my independent work, um, but uh, at w- uh, when I went to Oxford for my master's, I think I kind of took a break from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but last, you know, the, last summer really put the, the worlds really came crashing together. Oh, as, yeah. as you know, yeah. I mean, so. I think it started like around May, June. I mean, it was like first we were like reeling from COVID, yep. <laughs> and then. Um, all of a sudden, just like it was just like another just layer of just like madness <laughs> for like yeah. so just for being PG thirteen, like just madness. Let's call it madness for now. Just what happened? Totally, and totally. Yeah. yeah. So on the sort of political events uh, timeline, I mean, you know, you had the death of George Floyd in mm-hmm. May. Then you had um, you had COVID, death of George Floyd. Then you had you know Trump's you know rhetoric anti-china rhetoric just yeah all in this in the span of like oh, a yeah. few months yeah right? yeah um and like u.s china relations was like you know at a nadir like it was like at the you know people were like oh my god like we're in the second cold war blah blah, blah. <laughs> um yeah. and uh and intellectually you know i had always been kind of i had been familiar with the history of of how race uh, impacts international relations although to be to be honest i i didn't learn that from my studies at Oxford <laughs> that was not yeah, a surprise surprise yeah. of particular <laughs> emphasis uh at the yeah. university but um I had I had been curious and I I kind of had it in the back of my head but really when the events when I was sort of looking at the events I mean it timed well with my desire to kind of leave academia I was like you know what I need to write about this like um right right and um the the vertical at, at the Washington Post uh, made by history is great I mean they they invite historians to write and it is kind of academic it's kind of like an academic it's it's in between um, journalism and academia mm-hmm. um, in terms of like the writing, and so I um, and I think sometimes that that kind of bridge is needed, you know. No, absolutely, absolutely, and and I'm I'm really grateful for because that was kind of my transition, um, and and I you know I think that was one of my earlier articles, and I'm really grateful that Washington Post mm-hmm. was able to to publish that. Um, right. So yeah, that's that's kind of the the context for sort of why I, why I wrote it, um, and and I think uh, just to kind of tied a knot the what i really was trying to do there was really think about you know why did the anti-communist anti-china rhetoric really you know happen at the same time Mm -hmm. as um yeah the george floyd protests yeah so i think on that note right let's kind of give our viewers just some background like what are we even talking about you know we're kind of get we're in our own worlds because we get it but you know long story short the chinese government sort of became an active supporter, right, of the global Black Lives Matter movement. And I think 
Um, I saw instances where I, the, I think of, it's like a foreign ministry spokesman. I, I want to say it was like Lee Jin Zhao. Oh, Dolly Jin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Said, I think he said racism against like minorities in America is, is like a disease against American society. Um, and and I, to be quite frank, I mean, if you know Chinese politics, you know he's not like a stranger to controversy. <laughs> but oh, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> and then in a tweet, I think his boss, I think it was like Hua Chunying. Yeah. Um, and please forgive my tones. I, I haven't studied Mandarin since college, and I'm yeah, I'm brushing up nowadays. <laughs> but um, you know, she did the like the I can't breathe tweet, which you know, as we know, was sort of like a, a rallying cry for like black lives matter so like i noted all of this when it happened and personally i thought it was sort of like i I just didn't know how to feel i was like hmm, that's like really interesting just so random so strange so then it's like your article you know came across which sort of like you know examined all this critically and then it kind of added some sort of like historical context that i didn't know about to be honest and and kind of talked about the implications for the movement itself and you know i think you know, I knew you would be the ideal, I guess, person just for the episode, for what I envisioned this episode to be. And because I think you were kind of doing two things and you could disagree, counter, you know, agree. But when I read it, it was sort of like you're doing two things, right? The first thing is, in a way, you were sort of urging us to, I guess, move past our instinctive feelings of of this being opportunistic, right? By giving this sort of detailed historical context of um you know like black asian solidarity and at the same time you're sort of agreeing that the chinese government is exploiting this racial legacy of america right while and you're like at the same time you're noting their ideological shortcomings as well for you know for example like their actions then you know some places might not align with this messaging so i wanted to just i guess hand the mic over to you to like you know, respond to like just how I felt about the article, but also like, you know, talk about what was, I guess, what message were you trying to convey to just your average everyday reader? You know, like, did you have a particular audience in mind, et cetera? Yeah. No, yeah, of course. Um, Well, first, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's broadly right. Um, The one thing that I will say is um, there is some it's a tricky subject because i wouldn't say Mm -hmm. that the um what happened in the summer was the chinese government actively you know bring their support to the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. and the reason is because um the foreign ministry spokes as you said uh jolly jen um you know these these sort of individual people in the chinese foreign ministry uh, Mm -hmm. recent years are especially like toxic when it comes to yeah, like, yeah. Like, they call them like paper tigers is that did i get that right yeah well there, yeah. There, there's a term for this called wolf warriorism wolf war okay i completely messed it up i was had something else in my wolf warriors yeah wolf warrior diplomacy yeah, yeah wolf yeah. warrior diplomacy and there's actually a really a uh, good recent book um by um peter martin um from bloomberg who just recently wrote like a history of of how this came to be um and uh, I guess one sort of element of that that I can take uh, in this context is that the um, the foreign ministry actually um, was modeled off of like the military corps. So it, it, mm. it's always been a kind of um, it was supposed to. Well, actually, that, let's let's ignore that for now. We'll we'll bring, we'll come back if that's necessary. Yeah. The point <laughs> that I wanted to bring up was that um, relative to like other sort of like equivalents in the U.S., um, the foreign ministry in China is a pretty, a pretty low ranked 
um, arm of right. government. Right, right, so, um, I and and the reason why I want to make this distinction is that in the in the article I talk about the history of um the, uh of the CCP and their relations with um the civil rights movement. So you know at that time there were indeed like high level high ranking officials in China, you know interacting, although not you know directly. They there were some meetings, but you know. Uh, w. E. B. Du Bois, you know, came to China, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. shook hands with Mao. Yeah. That didn't happen. You know, Xi Jinping is not inviting George <laughs> Floyd's family to come. Yeah. To China, right. <laughs> Can you that, imagine the visual on that? What, well, so it's, uh, it's absurd. And to think that how absurd that would be, that was how absurd it was in the 70s when Du mm. Bois came. And, yeah, you know, yeah. an American intellectual ha- yeah. coming to communist China. You have yeah. Huey Newton, right? A little bit like came to China mm-hmm. to learn about Maoism. Yeah. Isn't there a video going around of like Paul Robeson singing the national anthem? I, <laughs> I yeah, don't know. I, I kid you not. I'm not familiar <laughs> about that. Um, <laughs> right. But, but, but anyway, the point, the point is that that itself, um, we have to be a little bit careful about how we think about mm-hmm. that. But right, right. what I did want to say was that the way that Black Lives Matter was weaponized by a diplomatic arm of of China today is really relevant to the historical record because mm-hmm. the fact that it you know somebody in the foreign ministry right these are still you know they speak for the government right so Zhao Lijian and Hua Chongying they they are um, you know speaker. Uh, what is it? The the megaphones. <laughs> They're megaphones. Yeah, spokespersons. For, yeah, 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 spokespersons for for the government. The fact that they thought that they had a kind of weapon, like an ideological mm-hmm. weapon that they could use in the kind of ideological confrontation by by pointing to Black Lives Matter is exactly one of the um, lessons from the Cold War era um, mm-hmm. in, right, in the U.S., right. which which was that race you know, domestic race issues really hampered U.S. foreign policy and their yeah. ideological confrontation with Soviet, uh, with the Soviet yeah. Union. Yeah, I mean, we, I think there was, it, it was in, um, there was that infamous photo of the German shepherd that's like biting um, the, you know, the the black boy in the street but that the cops kind of sicked on him. And then that photo, yeah. Khrushchev kind of used to like weaponize against the U.S. And that exactly. Kinda, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and that is really the point is that the, um, you know, as America, so whenever there's an era of inter, um, ideological competition, which, you know, we are in now, America is on the side of, you know, what? Freedom, right? Yeah. <laughs> the free yeah. world, democracy, human yeah. rights, right? Air quotes um, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And so any kind of um, reality in the U.S. that does not live up to that image that the U.S. projects abroad in the ideological competition is something that can bite them in the you know yeah in the butt and yeah. um and China knows that so I think um, the parallel is is not necessarily these kinds of like invectives and tweets that the foreign ministry kind of throws on Twitter the mm-hmm. parallel is just the way that China. Every time America kind of shows its failings, mm-hmm. the ideological adversary can just put up a mirror, yeah. and it's enough to do tremendous damage. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I, I'd say on that point, you would argue that it was, it's really, it's an effective tool, right? It's an effective tool. Um, and, and it's not just, it, it's not just an effective tool f- for the foreign ministry. So one, one thing that I didn't mention in the piece that, but now that I have spent some time away from it and, and mm-hmm. now that, you know, things have happened since I can say a little bit more confidently is that I think that the the racial issues in the U.S. also bolster the average Chinese conception of nationalism. So not only is it useful for mm. you know government officials throwing you know like insults on Twitter, but it also gives Chinese more confidence in themselves um, yeah. and their country, yeah. because no matter what, um, Chinese nationalism has always been kind of relative. And it has always right. been relative to, you know, what the other, you know, what the U.S. does. And the sense that the U.S. is declining is a really powerful image in China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Chinese, I think now more and more Chinese people say, look, America is not all that, right? right? They say that they have freedom, but like, you know, they treat yeah. black people like secondhand, like second class citizens. Yeah. Um, they say, you know, they, they. You know, try to hit us against on Xinjiang, but like actually, like their problems are even yeah. worse. Yep, um, yep. Th- this is from the perspective of, of a Chinese national. <laughs> I'm not. I, this is not my view, right? So I'm, I'm kind of channeling the the Chinese, uh, you know, right. average Chinese, which I definitely want to get into in a bit. But definitely continue. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. So yeah, you can uh, ask me questions, or I can um, just keep going. So, mm-hmm. but just to finish this thought, like I think that um, yeah, I mean, this is an extra- extraordinarily powerful view. So basically, like, in I think. Um, you know, in the in the world in which there was no BLM or let, let's say that there was, you know, no racism. I mean, this is obviously laughable. And but in the world where right. there's no racism, the ideals are consistent, right? American ideals are consistent, and it's it's hard mm-hmm. for for a Chinese, you know, in mm-hmm. in, the, in this kind of era to to really, you know, say anything yeah. wrong about America. Like, well, yeah. you know, America is for freedom. I mean, I don't I don't believe in freedom. Of course you believe in freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's so easy now for for Chinese, just average Chinese to say, look, I mean, look at I mean, oh, you you support America? I mean, what wh- which of their ideals is consistent, right? Right. Um and and race has always been a, a, a an issue um in in American as you know, <laughs> in American history, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it continues to be, um, and and that really does affect um, not just the way that the government, you know, uses that just as a kind of weapon, but also the sense of self um, for Chinese people. Yeah, I think this is an exciting, I guess, avenue we're going down, right? Because there's always been this kind of perpetual conversation, um, argument, um. What do you call it? Uh, I think I'm echoing a bit, but uh, we'll figure it, we'll we'll figure it out later. Um, there's always been this perpetual conversation going back from and um, you're still on, right? You can hear me. Yeah, yeah. Going back to uh, the Cold War and the Soviet Union, the United States, and it's, it was always like communism versus you know like the, the 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 American way of life and freedom versus the American way of life and and coming into China, particularly, I would say, like, post-Hu Jintao China, you know, the, the Xi Jinping years, where, you know, there's just this sense, and, you know, obviously, this is not, this is not a generalization, you know, this is just narratives that have come up, where China sort of become this sort of capitalist empty shell, right? And, like, what are, what is China going to stand for 
they're no longer a communist country in the eyes of, you know, they can't stand and say that they are, you know, like actual communism. I mean, China, I think, right. is one of the most capitalist, money-hungry, materialistic places on this planet, you know, consumption-based places on, on this planet. So nationalism has sort of been, I guess, you know, one of the solutions to that, right, in terms of, like, forming the the identity of a Chinese person and, and, and the national identity of a Chinese person. Like, what does that mean to be proud of China? What are they proud of, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and, and I guess what ideas, you know, can they instill into the broader Chinese public to kind of maintain, you know, a sustainable communist party, right? Because it's like at the end of the day, no matter how powerful the state is, the people still give them their mandate, right? And it's like, you know, I really like that we're talking about race as sort of like just this interesting, I mean, boogeyman is like not the right word, but just playing this kind of really interesting role, right? Where it's sort of repeating the same patterns from the Soviet Union, but kind of manifesting itself in like a different way nowadays, right? Yeah, and I, I don't even, you know, I, I'd like to make an even bigger argument mm-hmm. than that, because I think, I do think that America's, like, failure with, you know, reconciling race, you know, in, the, in like, the contemporary era has mm-hmm. really helped China bolster their legitimacy at home. Mm-hmm. Um, because... It really, like you said, you know, there is a kind of question of what what does it mean to um, support, you, you know, wh- where does legitimacy come from uh, in modern right. China? Um, yeah. Because, uh, as you said, you know, after decades of market reforms, the identity of China is not communist anymore. Yeah. Um, and so the Communist Party has to draw on other things. And for a while, they drew on performance, uh, you know, economic growth and, and whatnot. Yeah. But that's also stagnating and... And so there is a kind of question of where, where does the kind of nationalism come from? And it obviously helps when your adversary sucks, right? So <laughs> if, if, your, if the alternatives are not as good, it, it is also itself a kind of way to say, hey, look, you know, we have problems, but do you really want to go to our, you know, right. the U.S.? Right. Like, look at what's going on in the U.S. Yeah. Like, look at the anti-Asian. Yeah. And th- another thing that we should mention is that the anti-Asian racism that has sort of exploded in the past. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, plays into how it. that, you know, what like, was that used, you know, the, the stop, you know, AAPI hate sort of slogan that, that came out of that? Like, how was, was that used in any way, weaponized as well in China domestically? I would imagine it would be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked to parents who are like, I don't really want to send my, my kids mm-hmm. to, to U.S. schools. I mean, as you know, pa- Chinese yeah. parents love sending yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. their kids um, to study abroad in the U.S., which yeah. is one of the ironies of U.S.-China. <laughs> today. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric and the, the news coming out of the U.S., you know, everything kind of plays into the general, I, I, you know, average Chinese people don't know much about the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, actually, mm. they, they know way more than the average American knows about China, but um, yeah. they don't know much. If they know something, they know at the, in the moment from COVID, from anti-racist, uh, yeah. anti-Asian, uh, you know, uh, hate to the BLM movement, they know that America is is in chaos 
That, that's the only thing that they, <laughs> they think of is like, oh, you yeah. know, America is so messy right now. Like, I don't want to yeah. send my kids over abroad to, to the U.S., right? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, a, that's an important point. Yeah, I mean, speaking of just how they viewed America, I mean, coming down to the election, it was just really interesting to see, you know, I remember there, there was like an interview of, of just, um, uh, you know, just everyday Chinese people. And, you know, I think it was kind of in, in some major uh, coastal cities. And they, they were asking, like, yeah, who would you vote for if you could vote in the U.S. election? And like a lot of people said Trump, you know, and it's like in the back of my head was, is it like, do they really like Trump or do they, is it, are they kind of trolling? And it's like, yeah, elect Trump because he's just going to suck so bad. China's going to like win, you know, like if that, what's kind of the, the mindset in that. So. Yeah. That's a whole other world um, oh, of, of interest yeah. and, so, and sociological <laughs> analysis. Um, <laughs> but, but I think one, there is, there is a strand of uh, Chinese who think that, you know, Trump. So actually one one way to think about this is back to the point of um of this kind of ideological competition and one of the weaknesses of any kind of ideological competition is when your ideals that you put up in the ideological battle is inconsistent, right? Right. So right. we've what I've tried to argue in the piece and what I'm trying to make I I have actually kind of made tried to make a bigger argument is that race is this kind of needle in in one of the more important parts of American uh, ideological mm-hmm. sort of uh, framework, which is, you know, freedom, uh, and, you know, liberty, like what, what is liberty to, to, um, the civil rights movement, right? It's, it's a much, um, it's a, it's a point that, that is, uh, it, they don't, they don't fully live up to their ideals in this area. Right. Or, or, right, or you can right. say you could put, you could put it as human rights, right? So like human rights, right, right. um, you know, China always mentions every time Xinjiang is mentioned, China goes, what about you know, what about the black people? Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Look at how you treat your black citizens yeah. and you're going to come yeah. and tell me about Xinjiang, right? So that's the way that um, the ideological competition has has gone on the side of um, it, it, it currently. There's also another side of it, which is democracy. And democracy, one of the greatest arguments against demo- against the value of democracy now is look at who you elected to yeah. the highest office mm-hmm. in 2016. Yeah. You're going to come lecture us Chinese about how great yeah. democracy is when you elected a TV personality who <laughs> had a scandal with a porn star to yeah. the highest office through that democratic process, right? Mm-hmm. And so Chinese nationalists who support Trump, they sometimes use they sometimes have that kind of under underlying motive got it got it got it. i think on the point of race and you know international relations and, and foreign policy you know i think we could all agree that race continues to shape you know international and domestic you know threat perceptions right and as a result foreign policy i think whether we look at international responses to immigrants and refugees, access to health and environmental stability. I think, you know, I like that you, you called race sort of like a needle. It's really the needle that like weeds through all these things. Right. Mm. And I think to take a step back, I mean, for decades, I think you wrote, this is a line in your article where you'd mm. say like black activists would agree that race matters in foreign relations. Right. We all know that in the field of international relations, like Western dominance and, and, you know, to be honest, white privilege kind of permeates the field, right? 
just the, the 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 theories, the way they 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 analyze things. I mean, you look at democratic peace theory, you know, for example, right? Which is sort of like democracies are less likely to go to war than non democracies, right? And democracies are are less likely to go to war with each other, right? And then you know you you kind of see just off of evidence alone that that whole uh, you know uh, uh, theory just doesn't hold up, right? You have regions such as like the Middle East and North Africa, you know, democratizing states have experienced you know more internal conflicts than their less democratic peers, um, and you know leaders in the West continue to invoke this sort of you know theory in whenever they they are framing their foreign policy, and then yeah. they use it to justify invading and occupying you know less democratic countries notably less white countries so it's like i think all this being said like when it comes to this u.s worldview versus china worldview like you know how does america's framing because you know we kind of talked about like china's framing about uh, america but how does america's framing through this lens you know kind of impact our view of of china which lens? Um, oh, this just, I guess I'm talking about our kind of, you know, foreign service, our diplomatic corps, our, or kind of foreign policy, like uh, 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 the experts, right? That, that class in DC mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. who study this, the academics, the, you know, that, that sort of influence just America's general broad foreign policy. When we view China, you know, how does, uh, you know, uh, well, so I think I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, if the question yeah. is, how does the frameworks that we use to think about, especially in the in the U.S. and in, in the mm-hmm. West, how do how do the frameworks like in IR and like um, right. the way that we think about uh, you know states and and how and how to stability right international mm-hmm. stability, yeah. how does that map on to China? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting yeah. question. And uh, there was a recent um, interview with uh, the Seneca podcast did a re- an interview with Adam Tooze, who's a historian um, at Columbia. And, you know, he mentioned something that I think is really important, which is like whenever we do these kinds of comparisons, like, you know, the Thucydides trap or mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, which is a oh God, parable so of uh, <laughs> Athens and Sparta. Yeah, um, it's a kind of comparison. It's a parallel of like com- Athens and Sparta and their war, the Peloponnesian War with the U.S. and China. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to realize the sheer difference in size that we're talking about, right? Like Athens and Sparta were tiny yeah. compared yeah. to the size of China and the and the and, and the U.S. And it's it's I think that he what he what he's trying to get at is that these paradigms that come out of IR about the stability and um, about you know the nation state model, right? Even the nation state model itself is a Western idea right so it comes right, from, right. um uh, so yeah so basically you know this is like a west this is, this is called the westphalian model right it was a mm-hmm. european model that gets exported out to apply to the states today um and there's many ways to kind of go to kind of uh push back against this i mean one is that China sometimes conceives of themselves not as nation states, right? It's it sometimes mm. thinks of itself as a as a civilization, yeah. um, and and I I know this firsthand because uh, and you know I I as ethnically Chinese know that Chinese people sometimes even if I have an American passport sometimes think that mm-hmm. I sh- am Chinese and I shouldn't mm-hmm. say stuff about the motherland, right? Got it. That's got not it. a nation state model um, of of, uh, of of the world, right? Um, right. 
So, so I think uh, the paradigms are are worth uh, rethinking. And another thing, that, back to the sort of article, is that the I, the international relations theories. Um, the, there's three big ones. There's uh, realism, constructivism, and liberalism. Mm-hmm. They uh, are notoriously bad at accounting for a race. Oh uh, yeah, they're almost so, colorblind. Yeah. <laughs> So even constructivism, which is supposed to be kind of about ideas and you know construct you know constructed identities, um, mm-hmm. has been quite lackluster uh, in the way yeah. that it analyzes race. Um, and and so I do think that um, you know this uh, uh, like a model of IR that truly reconciles with how decisions are made on account of um, race and but also gender right and and yeah. other forms of domestic oppression I think are. It's still yet to be written. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. And, and I think I've, you know, I, I, I try to kind of uh, write one example of how, how I think it's, it's really important to think in these, in these terms, but we can apply this uh, really across the board, I think. Right, right. I think, you know, we're coming to the end, but I just wanted to kind of touch, just have one more discussion or one more topic on domestic Chinese, right? And mm. And Black Lives Matter, right? We, you know, you kind of see. I mean, what you've been saying is that the government is very vocal about this. There's a lot of, uh, of, you know, a, a, a narrative, right, coming from the state about this, and, and the Chinese people. It, or I should say, first, should you could you clarify that this notion of when America criticizes China for something such as Xinjiang or, or you know, for Hong Kong or something. You know, is it the state, the Chinese state, that's throwing you know America's racist use in our face, or is it is that also like the the general feeling of the Chinese public? So wh- there was a uh, quote uh, I think um, Peter Martin, uh, who was also on the Seneca podcast, said that I, th- I think is really good here is that you know you are y- if the foreign ministry per- spokesperson says something, you can be sure if you're not Chinese, you are way down the list of who their audience truly is, right? Oh, the, first, the first audience is always in the center of Beijing, right? The cent- like mm. Zhongnanhai, it's the, the central right. government quarters, is the mm-hmm. first audience of any Chinese official, right? Interesting. The second audience is the Chinese people. And you are, you know, if you're a diplomat, a Western diplomat, if you're a Western, uh, just an average citizen, you're way yeah. down the line of people that they're trying to speak to. So um, th- they channel public sentiment. So I think when there is a, in a case of you know Xinjiang, like so we've uh, in the past few months we've had the um, the issue over Xinjiang cotton, right. and <clears throat> basically, uh, you know, for those who don't know, there was this kind of uh, there were these U.S. sanctions um, over the use of forced labor in some of the companies mm-hmm. coming out of uh, that that uh, make cotton uh, in Xinjiang. And, um, right. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, you know, in these cases, it's, it's both, I think when the spokesperson says something, you know, that's, uh, the, sometimes this is called whataboutism. It's like when you kind of deflect a problem by yeah. saying another problem. <laughs> yeah. Right? What about them? Yeah. 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 What about, what about this? You know, when that yeah. happens, I think that he, they are channeling to some extent, um, the views of, of Chinese, the, the Chinese public, of course, the Chinese public is much, mm. is vast, but, a, a, yeah, a significant yeah. section of the Chinese public really likes what the spokesperson says. Otherwise, they really wouldn't be in their role, right? Mm. Um, so, so I think there is some alignment between elite and um, the Chinese people. Yeah, 
Do you think, and this might be a loaded question, but do you think that, I mean, a loaded question, but could be an obvious answer as well. Like, do you think that whataboutism, I guess, that you're seeing, um, you know, um, across, you know, from China, do you think it comes from a place of genuine concern or, you know, is it just a, uh, just a, a sort of defensiveness, right? And, and, and frustration at, at American criticism. And they, that's just their first kind of, you know, thing that they'll sling back. Or is it they're gen- generally like, you know, concerned, like, no, like, seriously, you guys are, are n- not treating your citizens fairly. You know, we have to speak out against it. Well, I, I think, <clears throat> I think that there is a, across the board, if you look at um, the way any kind of rhetoric that comes out of the foreign ministry, actually, China, the diplomat, Chinese diplomats specifically say this, that they never start in like battles, like online Twitter battles. They always say <laughs> that it's always a reaction, right? Mm. Um, and they really make a point about this. They say like, you know, <clears throat> pardon me. They say, you know, hey, we never start, you know, anything. America is the one that starts stuff, right? <laughs> like we right. are always trying to, when we um, get, uh, you know, when we get insulted, we fight back. But other than that, you know, we are like a peace loving nation. Like this is right. a, this is real CCP rhetoric um, that, <laughs> that diplomats um, follow. Um, yeah. So, so I think, uh, sorry, I, I, I've lost the thread of your question. What was the, what was the question again? Oh, no, whether, no worries. No worries. Not what I'm basically saying is that what about ism that we're getting from China? Yeah. Is it, is it, is it genuine? I mean, so I think right, that basically it's a genuine. Yeah. Across the board, it's it's not really genuine. I mean, it's it is mm. reactive. It's a kind of Got it. like Got it. let's fight back because hey, like we don't want to get um, insulted, you know, right. by by all these Western countries. And but but if there wasn't a little bit of truth to them, I think I don't think it would work. You know, and and the fact that it, you mm. know, you know that it works because Jolly Jen has so many followers on Twitter. Yeah, and. Uh, he's extraordinarily popular in, in the domestic sphere. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you know, it works because he was a nobody before he started picking fights right, with right. Western diplomats yeah. on Twitter. Um, yeah, he was like not I, I saw on the... track to be a foreign ministry spokesperson, right? Yeah. Until he did that. <laughs> yeah. I saw the tweet. Um, I mean, yeah, we're not going to talk about it. It's like that whole other topic, but there was like a whole controversy with him in, in Australia with the tweet about the Afghan soldier or exactly. the Australian soldier in Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. So I do think that we we should say that these these are kinds of they're kind of below the belt opportunistic tweets that are ultimately uh, kind of pandering to to the Chinese public. Mm-hmm. Right, but that doesn't make it any less um, worth thinking about because. The fact that it does play to the Chinese public uh, is something that we should think about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and um, and any to to any extent that we assist that feedback loop, we need to stop right. it. Right, right. And when you say we, who are you talking about specifically? America. Hmm. Got it. Got it. I mean, I'm an American citizen. I, you know, I I, I wish yeah. for the prosperity of both both countries. Um, mm-hmm. But but I do think that um, America uh, has to realize that a lot of their internal problems, right, are are precisely feeding this feedback loop between elites and the yeah. Chinese public. Yeah. When it comes yeah. to nationalism and and the ideological confrontation, all of yeah. this um, occurs, and they don't really know it. 
it's I, I don't think it's well acknowledged <laughs> that this is yeah a thing. not at all not at all yeah i think i think that's it for me right now i think that brings us to the end of just what was a really great conversation um chang i will tell you like i'll probably have you on for another episode i think we can talk about so many different things so <laughs> sure happy to <laughs> but yeah thank you so much um to chang for, for joining uh, you know in this conversation today to to kind of discuss a, a topic that is not getting as much attention as i think it should should be getting as you know you kind of into that as well so i do hope that we brought a lot of value to, to anyone listening today and as always thank you for listening to the brooklyn and beijing podcast